So we're going to carry on in our sermon series, Jesus and the Upside Down Kingdom, for one more week. And in Bill's first week with us, he said something that really stuck with me. And in talking to a number of you, it seems to have stuck with you as well. He said that it's actually the world that's kind of upside down. And Jesus' kingdom is right side up, which means the kingdom is to take the shape of things the way that God that it's the world that's a little bit backwards. And I want us to hold on to that thought again this morning as we look through a few passages of Scripture together. So I think the idea of Jesus' kingdom looking like what God intended, you know, making things right side up in an upside down world, that speaks to a challenge that Jesus had with the people of his day and that the church has experienced for 2,000 years. We're going to begin our exploration this morning in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And it reads, Don't misunderstand why I have come. This is Jesus speaking. Did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. That's from the New Living Translation. So that's these uh, lovely powder blue Bibles that you can grab off a shelf at the back. If you don't have one of your own, we would love for you to take one of those as a gift today. I want to read from another translation for you, these same two verses. This is from a translation called The Message. This was done by a fellow by the name of Eugene Peterson, who went all the way back to the original Greek texts and translated translated things into kind of like a more modern-sounding text. So he writes, Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the Scriptures, that's strong words, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I am going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. That's why I love that translation. It's very a flowery language. It's very descriptive. So Jesus here is telling his audience something important about what he came to do. And he does it in a way that I think should really get our attention. If we flip back to the New Living Translation at verse 17, Jesus says quite boldly, don't misunderstand why I've come. And I feel like that's kind of huge. I feel like these words are just leaping out of the page at me. I don't know about you. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I think that communicates a couple of things. First, Jesus is about to tell us at least part of the reason for his coming And second, he's putting an emphasis on his not wanting us to misunderstand any of it. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I haven't come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together. You have to remember, Jesus was a Jewish person speaking to other Jewish people, And where we pick up his story here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is particularly concerned with the religious leaders of his time who are particularly concerned with him because they're all afraid that he really has come to turn things 
upside down on them in ways that they did not approve of. If you want a little bit of background on that, you can head over to Matthew chapters 3, 4, and 5 up to where we began today. So this law, or the law of Moses, depending on which translation that you're looking at, what is it? Well, the short answer is it's the, the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also known as the books of Moses. And if you've had even a passing glance at any of these, particularly if you've looked into Leviticus at all, you know that there's an awful lot of regulations in there. It's hard reading. And it's hard for us to get our minds around, mostly because we're not Israelites living in the culture of the ancient Near East worlds. We're Canadians living here in the 21st century. Our culture and our worldview are really different. So here's a first bullet point about what the law of Moses is all about. It's a revelation of God's will for humanity. And a revelation from God is just a way that he communicates something to his people. It's a revelation of God's will for humanity that we might live in a state of perfect righteousness. The language it's written in expresses that righteousness in the cultural context of the ancient Near East. It's an ideal. If, and it's a really big if, if one could follow its full intent to the letter in its own cultural time and place, one could be considered perfectly righteous. Tall order. I don't know about you, and part of my job is to actually study theology for a living so I can communicate. I don't have a well-rounded grasp on how I would take the full intent of the law of Moses and live it out in our cultural moment in the postmodern age. Way smarter people than me have worked on this and written big books about it, and it's something that we still debate about in the church. The point here is that the law is not merely a, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? A checklist, a checklist. It's not a checklist to declaring oneself righteous in God's eyes. Psalm 51, 14 to 17 says that we're not to rely on the requirements of the law as a means to finding God's forgiveness. In other words, there's just no way to be legalistic enough with Scripture to earn God's forgiveness brings us to our second bullet point about what the law of Moses is all about. It was given to Israel to be expressed through Israel to those around them. They were to be a means for others to come to understand the first bullet point, that God has a will for humanity and it includes righteousness. And here we are still talking about this thousands of years later, so I think God knew exactly what he was doing when he gave the law to Israel. Exodus 19.6 calls Israel a kingdom of priests. Those are people that bring the grace of God to others, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Apostle Paul, if we jump way ahead in Scripture to Romans 7, 7, backs us up when he says that the law of Moses was given to point out our sinfulness and our need for God. It's there to hold a mirror up to our faces so we can see sin in ourselves, those ways that we don't live out the perfect righteousness of God. 
But I'm going to throw it out there that it's not just there to clobber us over the head and say, hey, you tripped up. I don't think that's the purpose. We can learn about this by looking at the story of Israel woven all throughout the Old Testament. It's a repeating cycle of God revealing the model of perfect righteousness, Israel tripping up over things, and God coming along and picking them up, drawing them back to himself. And this goes on over and over again. When I read those stories, I see a loving God approaching his people and saying, I really, really want the best for you. I know you're not going to be able to get there on your own. I understand that. But because I love my people, I'm going to come and I'm going to pick you up after you trip, and I'm going to graciously offer you my best. That's the purpose of God's law. And when Jesus says that he hasn't come to demolish it, but to accomplish it or to fulfill it, that's what he's talking about. What he wants to demolish is any of our limited understanding in our humanness of what the law is. What he wants to demolish are legalistic, unmerciful applications of the law. There's lots of hints, even in the Old Testament itself, before Jesus ever even utters these words, that a legalistic, unmerciful application was never God's intent. Well, he's a favorite character in Scripture, so let's talk about David for a moment. There's three things that stand out to most people most often about David. First is his defeat of Goliath. Second would be God anointing him as king over Israel, because David was a man that had God's own heart. And third, of course, is the story of David's rather king-sized trip up with Bathsheba. And as I was reading that story again this week to prepare for today, I realized what a gross story that actually is. You know, somehow David catches a glimpse of a woman taking a bath... He decides that he wants her. He has someone that's one of his servants or his soldiers go to bring Bathsheba to him. So we've got a consent problem. David sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And then because David wants her for himself, he sends her husband off to battle in a position at the front of the ranks where he's certain that the man will be killed. It's an awful big set of trip-ups. But at some point, David gets it. Remember, God calls him a man after his own heart. So somehow the heart of God is in there despite all of these mess-ups. David gets it. Listen to how he responds in Psalm 51. So this is verse 2. David speaking to God. Wash me clean from my guilt... Purify me from my sin. So David is going to God and saying, God, I need you to do this for me. And then if we skip down to verse 16, again, David's still speaking to God. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. I love this. 
The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So considering that story of David, there's an obvious three of the Ten Commandments that David broke. And the Ten Commandments are among... Uh, the parts of the Old Testament that most people would agree even today, like those are just rules for then, for now, and, and forever. So he committed adultery by sleeping with another man's wife. He basically stole that woman from her husband by arranging the man's death. So we've got adultery, stealing, and murder. And if you read all of David's response to God in Psalm 51, you might agree that it could just pretty easily be entitled, God, I screwed up everything. As David acknowledges that he screwed up everything, he says to God, I can't offer you any sacrifice that's outlined in the law that's going to make up for this. I can't bring you any kind of offering that's outlined in the law that's going to make up for this, or I'd surely do it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. We could insert the word repentant there. God will not despise these things. That's pretty profound. It's not about the letter of the law, but the intent of it. It's about those purposes of the law that we've already looked at. The prophetic writings of the Old Testament even back this up. I'm going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's one of Israel's prophets. And if you're, you're new to the exploration of Christianity and the, and the Bible's a fairly fresh thing to you, don't start your exploring in the book of Ezekiel. It's... Uh, if you've read it, it's pretty trippy. But this part is plain. This is chapter 36, 25 to 27. This is God speaking to Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive one. And I will put my spirit in you. Sticking with the prophets here, this is from Jeremiah 31. But this is the new covenant I, God, will make with the people after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. And that's a key takeaway for us today. The purpose of this law in the Old Testament is about its intent and about having that intent written right here in our hearts. It's not about legalistic and unmerciful applications. And if that's the purpose of the law, what does it mean when Jesus says that he's come to accomplish it or to fulfill it? We already made mention that the religious leaders of his time were very concerned that Jesus was trying to demolish their legalistic and unmerciful application and interpretation of the laws, which to them, that interpretation, that equaled 
the law. And I had lots of conversations with lots of folks over the years where a certain interpretation of this book or parts of this book equal the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to toss it out there that we need to beware of that kind of thinking. If you read some of the Apostle Paul's letters to the early churches in the New Testament, you'll discover why. Um, Right from the beginning of the church, people were trying to sort that out. But Jesus says, nope. I'm not here to demolish what's in the Scriptures. I'm here to accomplish its true purpose. Here's a neat quote that I ran across this week. Jesus not only fulfills certain anticipated roles from prophecy, but also that his interpretation of the scriptures completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning. Everything that the Old Testament intended to communicate about God's will and hopes and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning in Jesus. Jesus has come to actualize the scripture and take his disciples to a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. I'd love to tell you whose quote that was, but I had so many books open on my desk this week, I wrote down the quote and missed which book it was from. So I'd kind of like to go back there myself. But we really could do like a whole set of sermons just on that stuff, the Old Testament prophecies and how they anticipated and foretold Jesus and what Jesus would do and accomplish. Relevant to today, Jesus was also prophesied and expected to complete and clarify God's intent and meaning when it comes to the Scriptures. If we back up, to Matthew chapter 4, we find that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. In our context, that would be a little like Jesus wandering into church here with us this morning, which would be something. That would be harder to compete with than the soup. Be like Jesus walking into the church this morning and coming up and expecting to do what I'm doing right now, communicating from the Scriptures. And when we communicate from the scriptures, you have an expectation that Paul or Bill or I kind of know what we're doing, and you're right to expect that. We take that seriously. If I go to my chiropractor, if I go to my chiropractor to have my wonky spine looked at, I can go into his office, I can see that he's educated, and certified, and that he belongs to a professional college who holds him to a standard of care. And I like to know these kinds of things when he's got my head in his hands and he's about to maneuver my neck, you know, with the cracking and and the everything else. I like to know that he's well-trained. All of that to say that Jesus had to be accepted as someone with a command of the scriptures to be allowed to come into the synagogues and preach. It wasn't like an organized process like we have in our denomination. But someone in authority had to approve Jesus to get up and preach. Trying to picture that today, if Jesus wandered in and asked to preach, 
And we'd say, no, we got to call down to Oakville to talk to our bishop first and ask if that's okay if you do that. But that's the kind of thing that happened. So he didn't just wander in and start speaking. He had to be approved. They had to feel safe that he understood what was in here and wasn't going to take people off on some strange tangent. But chapter 4 of Matthew also says that Jesus went about, when he's not teaching in the synagogues, he went about the countryside announcing the good news of the kingdom. And I think unless we want to entertain the notion that Jesus was prone to, you know, sort of talking out of both sides of his face, you know, the double talk, we have to accept that there was compatibility between the scriptures that he's teaching in the synagogue, the law, and the good news of the kingdom that he's spreading. Jesus completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning. Here's another quote for you before we look at a practical example. Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the law, that scripture, showing what is binding principle and what is temporary symbolic ritual. And here I got to be careful I don't get myself into trouble with any of you because that's a hot button issue. A bit about the temporary symbolic rituals. How do we sort that out? It gets a lot of ink in the New Testament. Um, if you want to check some of that out, look at Paul's letters to the churches in Corinth. And it's been the subject of continual debate throughout the entire 2,000 year history of the Christian church. And it's really one of the reasons why we have so many denominations and expressions and branches of the Christian church is our different takes on that issue right there. Here's an example from Matthew chapter 12. This is 12, 1 to 7. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. How's that for clarification? Mercy is more important than the letter of the law in there. And that sounds a little bit like something David said all the way back in Psalm 51 that we looked at. So it's all connected. There's this beautiful through line all throughout this book, there's themes that just keep coming back over and over again that reveal the mind of God to us. In this case, Jesus clarifies that the temporary symbolic ritual, don't eat that bread, 
according to the letter of the law. That's not nearly as important as the hunger that was being tended to in the taking of that bread. It's about the extension of God's mercy. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Of course, that passage there, that's talking about Jesus' kingdom. That's the good things to come. I'd like to encourage you to pop your Bibles open this week and have a look at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 this week. It's absolutely brilliant and beautiful on that subject. As we make our way into the home stretch here, I want to do a quick little word study with you. I want to look at this word fulfill or accomplish that we've been sort of centering around today. I'm not going to bore you with the Greek because my Greek pronunciation is pretty awful anyway, but here's a quick snapshot of the various ways that this word gets used in Scripture. So it can mean to accomplish or be obedient. It can mean to bring out the full meaning of something. It can mean to complete to a destined or designed ending. And this one... This meaning is most commonly used by Matthew in his gospel. To bring into being those things that were promised. Matthew in his gospel was out to prove to Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. So he's writing to an audience of Jewish people. So it's really important for Matthew to build a credible case So the Jews of his time would not misunderstand why Jesus came. We go back to the Old Testament again, to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 2. We find that one of the expectations for the Jewish Messiah was that he would provide the definitive exposition or explanation of their scriptures. In other words, he was coming to clarify it. They were expecting this of their Messiah. He would bring out the full meaning of it. So when Jesus identifies that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets to accomplish their purpose, this is one more way that he's announcing himself as Messiah. I think it's really cool how that all dovetails together. So what is all of that history and theological speak and all that other goodness. What makes any of that good news? How can we apply that to our living? I think the first thing we can apply to our lives is we don't need to be afraid of the Old Testament. I know lots of folks who are afraid of the Old Testament because it's a little bit denser to to wade through, and there's some stuff there that's just really hard for us to grasp from our cultural context. But it's the same God at work in those pages as we find revealed in Jesus in the New Testament. It takes a little bit more work to see in the Old Testament because the context of these stories are so different. But it's there. And I'm going to throw in a shameless commercial here. We've just launched a new season of our dinner church on Tuesday evenings. And when that wraps up in March, we're actually going to do a book study on 
some strategies we can employ to understand this book when we read it. So I'll have a little more to share with you in the coming weeks about that. The second thing that we can take from all of this is good news is that we've learned that God wants the best for his people. You know, that state of perfect righteousness. The law, the scriptures, those things are there to help us understand that, not to make us feel condemned. It's an expression of an ideal in a certain time and place. That ideal, that's alive and well, and we have access to it through Jesus The third piece of good news that we take is that the law, it's not a to-do list for earning God's favor. And I want to say that again. Scripture is not a to-do list for earning God's favor. It's something that God, through his Son, wants to write right here into our hearts. The fourth piece of good news, God's law is not about legalism and judgmentalism. We are not meant to pick up this book and clobber people over the head with it. It's not about legalism. It's about mercy. In our exploring this morning, we found God says it. And Jesus certainly says it. Finally, we have a great starting point to understanding all of this. And, and I recognize that it can be a lot. There's a lot of history and theology and fancy academic words like hermeneutics at play here, which is just, yeah, academic speak for a strategy for understanding Scripture. Start with Jesus. He says it himself, plain as day. He came to accomplish it, to bring out the full meaning of it, to complete it, to bring into being those things that were promised and designed. So if the exploration of of faith and Christianity and Jesus and church is fairly new to you, or if you're questioning these things for the first time, or you've been a Christian for years, and you're you're still wondering, how do I put all of this together? Go to Jesus. Here's what I think happens when we do that. So often... We end up looking at our faith and at the scriptures through the lens of an upside-down, broken, messed-up, hurting world. And that doesn't resemble God's ideal of perfect righteousness that he offers in his mercy. And we've been looking at this picture for the last four weeks If you look through the wrong lens, things will appear upside down. When we look at this through the clarifying lens of Jesus, here's what happens. Things turn right side up again. 
Start with Jesus. Make him your anchor point. If you're doing life, reading the scriptures, and anything starts to look upside down again, go back to him. Go back to him. Let's not misunderstand why he's come. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the word that you have given us. You're a God that has desired to reveal himself to his creation and in particular to us as your children. And you've done this in many ways. You do this as we look at the world around us and see the beauty of your design. You do this through the voice of your spirit within us as we've accepted you. And you do this through the words that you've inspired people to write into this book that we can hold in our hands to try and understand you. Thank you for the image of a merciful God that we discover there. God who loves us, who wants the best for us and is willing to, in your grace, offer to us. Jesus, as your church, and I'll put the big C on there, the big C church, the global church, for the times that we have misapplied or misunderstood the intent of what's in this book. And we have used it to clobber others over the head and to make them feel judged and condemned. Jesus, today, as this part of the church, we repent of that. We ask your forgiveness of that. For those that are here or who might be listening today that have had that experience of being clobbered over the head with the rule of the law, without the merciful, clarifying intent of it, I pray, Jesus, that through your Spirit and through the repentance of the church, that you can bring healing from that, and that by your spirit, those folks would begin to see this picture of a loving God revealed through the clarifying lens of Jesus from the front to the back of the Bible. Help us as we go this week, Jesus, not to misunderstand why you've come. Help us to be vessels of your mercy and your love to others this week. And we'll pray that trusting your spirit will enable us to do it in your name. Amen.